0: From The West Australian, it's Monday the 18th of December. I'm Ben O'Shea and this is The West Live. The West Live. The West West Live with Ben O'Shea. This Christmas when you look around the table at lunch the smiling faces of loved ones will look back at you but some people face the prospect of a very different festive season experience a far lonelier one Technology and modern life has provided the illusion that we are more connected than ever before but look deeper than followers and likes and you quickly see what is really going viral and that's loneliness Research from KPMG last year found 5 million Aussies or roughly 1 in 4 experienced loneliness and it comes with a a very serious cost that is measured both in financial and human terms. Lonely people have a 26% increased risk of death and research has likened loneliness to smoking 15 cigarettes or having six alcoholic drinks per day. More dangerous than obesity was how one study described it. The KPMG research estimated loneliness cost the Australian economy $2.7 billion per year. Mental health issues associated with it are estimated to cost the economy up to $60 billion dollars annually. And this isn't just happening in Australia. British researchers believe loneliness could be recognised as the UK's most dangerous public health issue. In jurisdictions around the world, health authorities talk of a loneliness epidemic which has only gotten worse after the COVID-19 pandemic. So enjoy your Christmas lunch with family, but maybe spare a thought for those who you don't see at the table. Maybe a family member who's become estranged or a friend you haven't seen in a while. They could be a victim of Australia's loneliness epidemic and a call from you is all it takes to get them on the path to escaping it. Coming up on today's show, we'll tell you how to avoid food poisoning at Christmas lunch and we'll count back the biggest stories in federal politics. But first, let's begin our countdown of the 23 biggest stories in 2023. The West West. Live. Making news. And joining me in the studio is Sunrise correspondent Matt Tinney. And we've got something exciting this week for the last week of The West Live in 2023. We're going to count down the biggest news stories of the year. And we're not just going to do a top five. We're not just going to do a top ten like other media outlets. We're going to do the top 23 in 2023.
1: I love it. Was there a meeting that decided this? No, I just whipped them up. I just whipped (laughs) up the list myself. Good idea.
0: And and now we're going to go through them. We're going to count down from the 20. 23rd most significant story to the number one most significant story that you'll okay. hear on friday uh, so let's get into it 23 on TV, there was one show that was more talked about than any other, and it was, of course, Succession. Oh, they had their season oh, four Could do a whole uh, podcast finale. on this. We easily <laughs> could. Uh, it seemed that every episode that was dropped in this season made headline news around the world, especially episode three of the final mm. season, the death of Logan Roy, uh, played by Brian Cox. Do you remember that? What a well, shocker it was. The thing was.
1: is, completely went against the usual arc for a TV V series. Yeah. So to have this sort of pinnacle moment so early on in the season was like what?
0: Yeah. What was, is going on? It was crazy. People yeah. just could not get their heads around no. it. Personally, I don't think it made the series better. Like I think that last season suffered a little bit because it didn't have Logan I, I, Roy. I would he's have such a good character. would have
1: killed him off a little later. I agree. I would have yeah. killed him off
0: a bit later. But yeah, what it did good. do is return the series to what it originally was: the idea of a succession and these kids. Uh, it's kind of like a Rupert Murdoch yeah. News Corp kind of um, parallel. Um, them fighting over the empire, which I think you know took it back to its original vision, which I think was kind of fun. Uh, and then who's the, your favourite uh, character? Oh, it changes from. From week oh, to week. really? Like I love I love the dynamic between Tom and cousin Greg. Like they <laughs> always they always crack me up.
1: <laughs> the Bobsy Twins. And,
0: yeah yeah yeah. And, and and Tom and his little Greglets. Uh, and, I love Shiv. Oh Shiv I think is amazing. Yeah. Played by our very own Sarah Snook. Yeah um,
1: so
2: good.
0: Uh, and Kendall I feel so sorry for him. You know he always tends to lose out. Um, and uh, Kieran Culkin as Roman oh, is also genius. hilarious. The lines and in the that relationship show, between oh, him
1: and um oh god no, Jerry Jerry yeah yeah, yeah. yeah
0: it's. So, it's yeah. so, such a clever show. Like, it, it will absolutely go down as one of the greatest shows in the history of television.
1: Vote for me. Just, please, vote for me. Shiv, vote for me. No. Yes. No. Shiv, don't do this. No. You can't do this, no. No. Shiv. No. Absolutely yes. no. not, man. No. Absolutely not. No. Why?
3: No, why? What, just... I love you. I really... I love you, but I cannot stomach you.
0: The finale, though, one of the all-time feel-bad finales. Yeah. like there were no winners; everybody lost. Well, I guess the one person left standing was Tom. He's the one who yeah. ended up uh, inheriting the crown. Uh, and there was that that final kind of sequence where you see him driving off in the back of a uh, you know a town car with Shiv, and it, he's clearly now in the position of power in that relationship after mm. previously not wearing the pants. Yeah, uh, Roman was sitting alone in a bar sipping a martini sort of smiling ruefully. And then that sort of really depressing image of Kendall walking through the park, um, looking at the Hudson River, looking just completely mm. distraught as he sat there in that final shot of him looking out over the river. What a show it was. They don't make many like that, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, and it just goes to show, you know, you can have all the money in the world, but it doesn't bring you happiness.
0: Now, who could forget the Chinese spy balloon
4: oh, that flew across
0: oh, North America? What a saga! It became it became internet famous. <laughs> it was the subject of memes. It featured on US chat shows. Uh, it, it was it was on Saturday Night Live. Uh, everybody around the world was fascinated in this uh, spy balloon that was just because it was moving so slowly. Yeah, it started above North American airspace in Alaska, went across Canada, and then down through the US. And it was just travelling so slowly. And your TV network's just, (laughs) like, (laughs) tracking it. Every day it was like spy balloon watch. And members of the general public were taking photos with their phones, were excited on social media when they spotted the balloon. Uh, And then the US Air Force shot the thing down uh, off the coast of South Carolina. It was pretty embarrassing for Beijing, though, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we still don't know exactly. We
0: still don't know exactly what the point mm. of it was. Mm. Um, the US recovered the uh, the equipment and they and they investigated it and said they didn't think that it was doing much surveillance, um, but it did have a bunch of equipment on board. Uh, they weren't looking at it as a major breach in security um, and more just maybe an accidental issue uh, of this bi balloon getting out of control. But it was one of a number of incidents involving the Chinese Chinese military this year. Um, there was the sonar blast that yes. injured Australia. Australian naval divers. Um, There were some close calls, Chinese naval vessels probably not behaving very well uh, in international waters. Um, But I hope for 2024, maybe international relations with China get back on track after Xi Jinping met with Joe Biden Mm. in San Francisco last month.
1: And it's, I mean, the AUKUS deal is. Is sort of a sticking point with China. Yeah. But then the flip side, we've seen sort of those trade sanctions yeah, be start lifted. To lift, exactly.
0: So, so uh, optimistic, cautiously, thawing. Thawing. cautiously optimistic. <laughs> Trust but verify, I think was Joe Biden's words. <laughs> 21. Hollywood was brought to its knees this year by a couple of strikes. So you had the Writers Guild of America and you had the SAG AFRA organization strike. So all of the actors, all of the writers went out on strike. Um, The Writers Guild were out from May 2 to September 27. Um, So that was over 11,000 screenwriters all all walked off the job. They were picketing out the front of the big studios. Um, The 148-day strike is the second longest in the history of Hollywood Um, and the actors stayed out um, until November. They were protesting uh, more Equitable revenue sharing um, for the content that they help create, uh, and they wanted some protections uh, about AI because yeah. that's increasingly becoming used
1: in the entertainment industry. And you have to remember, many of these actors are not paid a fortune. Yeah, like, that's right. You know, we're not talking about the megastars. Yeah, yet.
0: and that's exactly it, right? Like, I think when when a lot of people hear oh, "actor strikes," they go, oh, "I don't have much sympathy for Ben Affleck." Yeah. Um, but we're not talking about them. We're talking about the you know the bit players, uh, the people who have like walk on roles, <laughs> uh, and they might be also yeah doing a, doing yeah. a couple of jobs at a time just to make ends meet, yeah. and they're the ones that really um, left out, literally left out in the cold. Um, it was a pretty brutal strike. The studios um, initially set a very hard line in mm-hmm. negotiations, but ultimately um, it was resolved when the studios and the producers came to the party, they came back to the negotiating table, pretty much gave um, the writers and actors most of what they wanted, they got and some protections, more, and a bit more. Yeah. They threw a bit extra, because I think there was a recognition that, you know, you can't have movies, you can't have TV shows yeah. without the writers. Um, and uh, so they play a a very very crucial role uh, and that was recognised interestingly for me as someone who writes about movies, 2023 will go down as the year when I spoke to more producers and directors than ever in my life because Uh, because there were no actors there were no actors, no writers, the only ones promoting the movies that were being released were the the producers producers. Uh, and so look, it was interesting trying to pitch those stories to the newspaper (laughs) you know, here's Joe Bloggs producer that nobody has ever heard of before but trust me, trust me, he's a big deal, Uh, but we, we got there in the end uh, and but it did see a bit of a slowdown on production and we'll mm. feel that in 2024 was, movies being pushed back
1: it was interesting like drew barrymore her show she it's end, you know ended it for the strike but then came, came back, back early yeah and then had and then to, it had to end, end, end it again because the optics are so terrible
0: yeah, yeah and i think a lot of people struggle to navigate it in hollywood um but it'll be business as usual in 2024 and we'll get to see a lot more of those great tv shows and movies the biggest stories this year that transcended pop culture and really probably became bigger than it really deserved to be uh, was this romance between Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, which capped the most incredible year for Taylor Swift. So let me just run through some stats for you, Maddie. So she had the highest grossing concert film of all time with her Mm -hmm. Eras Tour concert film, $250 US dollars that generated at the box office. Uh, Her Eras Tour uh, that that film was based on broke a record as well it crossed the $1 billion mark, US dollars, so that's what's $1.5 billion Australian dollars yep. this year, just incredible. Um, but there's been so much talk about her relationship with the Kansas City Chiefs tight
1: end, Travis Kelsey. And what have you made of that this year? I think it's been fantastic for NFL and for Taylor <laughs> Swift. It's been amazing and you know, when she did uh, that concert as part of her Eras tour where she changed the lyrics to the yes. song, you know, Karma is the guy on the Chiefs. It's, uh, it was just brilliant. I think it's been fantastic to watch Um, and it's so wholesome isn't it yeah You know, and that's the thing about Tay Tay. You know, she's got these sort of edgy sides in her songs, but it's very wholesome. Everyone can follow her. And Travis Kelsey just seems like a nice guy. That's kind of my impression. Yeah, that's it.
0: Like the last time I remember a big celebrity relationship uh, at this sort of level was, you know, maybe like your Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. But there was not the same sort of wholesomeness around it. Not the same wholesomeness. You didn't
1: necessarily (laughs) feel just there's nothing wholesome about that one. There was,
0: whereas. Every time you see Taylor Swift in the stadium watching Travis play and when he does something good, which he does quite a lot because he's an insanely good NFL player, mm. you see her. She's just so happy and cheering along. Uh, and she Remember? was, of course, named Time Magazine's Person yeah. of the Year. And she
1: Remember when she ran to the side of stage to go yes. and kiss him when yeah. he was at the concert?
0: It's just, it's just the sweetest thing, right? And the mm. relationship was going on for a little bit longer than the public knew about it. After he sort of uh, mentioned her on the podcast that he does with his brother, he went to one of her conferences Concerts, That's right. Um and said he threw a, a little friendship bracelet up on the stage with yes, a message with his phone to number, her, his phone it? number yeah. on it, uh, and then she tracked him down, and they were dating secretly. And uh, look, it's lovely, and I think a lot of Taylor Swift fans are very happy for it because yeah. she hasn't had the best luck when it comes to
1: men. Um, She's going to struggle, though, to get a new album out of him because everything's all roses. And yeah, this is the thing.
0: She needs to break up You need
1: the breakup. You need the heartbreak, the angst. I was watching an old interview with her the other day where she was talking about Ed Sheeran calling her because he was at a club oh. and he said, oh, they've played, you know, Shake It Off, three times um, since I've been here. And Taylor Swift said she was so glad because all she's wanted is people to dance to her music and usually what they do is cry. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, so there we go. So Taylor Swift,
0: in from pop culture, I think, you know, she has definitely been the big winner oh, of 2023. She, she Travis been, Kelsey yeah. along for the ride. Yeah. Uh, and it looks like they're both enjoying themselves. So let's hope 2024 brings us more Fingers Taylor crossed.
1: Swift and Travis Kelsey news. And Maybe do you know what she's been bells? the big winner of as well? What's my that? Instagram algorithm, because <laughs> That's, that's <laughs> all I get pumped. And is your Spotify, Taylor Swift videos, your Spotify Wrapped oh was all goodness, Taylor Swift as well. Oh my goodness, constantly. Yeah,
0: there we go. There we go. Nineteen. Now, this story was a fascinating one this year. The story of Kathleen Folbig. Uh, She was reviled as a baby killer. At one point, she was considered Australia's most hated woman when she was convicted in 2003 of murdering three of her children and for the manslaughter of another. Um, But this year, we saw she was pardoned and released from prison in June after 20 years behind bars. And then this month, her convictions were quashed by an appeals court, which is a very rare step indeed after an inquiry examined new scientific evidence and found there was now reasonable doubt about her guilt. Um, what did you make of Kathleen Folbig's story? There's a fascinating wow, interview fas- on Spotlight as well.
1: Fascinating, fascinating. Uh, I believe her. Yeah. I totally believe her. And I think it's interesting how science over time is changing. Yep. Um, that justice world, that crime world, um, and just to think that she was locked up for that time. 20 years. For something she didn't do.
0: Yep. And now that that conviction has been quashed, it opens uh, the door for a compensation payout. And legal experts are saying this could be a record payout mm. um, for wrongful conviction. After you know, 20 years behind bars, you would certainly hope that uh, she's in line for a pretty decent uh, compensation payout. Yep. And I think we'll get that sooner rather than later in this
1: case. And you think she did that interview, the spotlight interview um, with Nat Barr, and she sort of said that that's going to be it. Like, she doesn't want sort of all the attention or anything. Yeah. She just wants a quiet life now, and, and who could blame her?
0: Thanks, Maddie. Well, we'll come back tomorrow with more of our countdown of the 23 biggest stories in 2023. You're listening to The West Live food poisoning is one of the most common illnesses in Australia, with an estimated 4 to 7 million cases of foodborne illness each year. The bad news is, according to the Food and Safety Information Council, cases of food poisoning rise over Christmas. Here to help you avoid it is expert in antimicrobial resistance and CEO of biotech company Lixa, Dr Maud Eichenboom. Good morning, Maud. Good morning, Ben. How are you? Yeah, good. And so nobody likes getting food poisoning, but how bad can it get? What's the worst case scenario?
3: Oh my gosh, the worst case scenario, you're really stepping on it now. Like you, you could have blood in your stool, it could be um, full on and it can spread as well, um, depending on the, what's the cause of the food poisoning.
0: Yeah, and it's extremely contagious, is that right?
3: It can be very much. If it comes from a bacteria, It's um, yeah, you've got to watch yeah, so, where you
0: bring it. So you definitely don't want to bring it to the Christmas lunch table and then have your whole family go down. So you've got some recommendations to help prevent spreading airborne illness to your loved ones at Christmas. Where should people start?
3: Uh, look, like first start... This is an occasion where people come together, they're multi-different generations coming together and they all have different sensitivities. So one, be aware of that. Two, watch any poultry you're using, make sure it's cooked, like the juices run clear. Um, Avoid that the food gets longer than two hours out of the fridge. So make sure it goes back into the fridge that you have lots of space. And of course, like clean your hands, clean your spaces. Um, Don't mix raw with uh, cooked, um, like the general things that we actually grow up knowing. Um, but we need to be extra
0: careful. Yeah, sometimes I think people can play it a bit uh, fast and loose at Christmas time. like the turkey might be in the oven and everybody's getting hungry and you go, oh, I don't know if those juices are running clear or not, and you kind of take a bit of a punt on it. And so it's supposing you do pull the turkey out of the oven a little bit too early and you're cutting it and you do see a little bit of pink in there, Is, that's just a no-no. You just can't serve that at all.
3: Ah, uh, yeah. I would really put it back in. Put it back. Put it I would back make in. sure. Yeah. yeah, I would make sure it's running clear.
0: And in terms of the types of meat that people are cooking, um, does it make a difference if uh, you know you're using some some meats that maybe have been raised with antibiotics, which is which is a thing in the agricultural industry?
3: Ah, uh, yes. Look, I would prefer antibiotic-free all times because uh, the antibiotics can also generate more resistant bacteria. So, you might actually get yourself a bacterium that's even worse. But also, you take, you eat the antibiotic. So, then your own bacteria are going to respond to that. And then you might get uh, within your own body reactions.
0: Yeah, right. That's a good tip. Uh, and talking about tips, does it make a difference, you know, where you source your food from? Um, because these days, you know, you go into the supermarkets, and you know, you might be you might be looking at uh, the locally sourced prawns and crayfish it might be a bit more expensive than the stuff that's uh, frozen and, and imported from overseas.
3: Uh, look, um, I would uh, definitely prefer local. We've got amazing produce in WA. Um, it's shorter path to actually get to your table, so it's not traveling through heat, it doesn't have to be frozen, but also there are different food standards in other countries, and they often come with pesticides, with antibiotics, um, I would be really careful, I would prefer to, to source them locally.
0: Yeah, and have you got any advice for how to deal with leftovers? Because that's a big part of Christmas as well. Anything you don't get through at lunch probably hangs around in the fridge for a couple of days, comes out at mm-hmm. lunchtime, goes back into the fridge, comes out again. The next lunch goes back into the fridge again.
3: Absolutely. If it's um, food that's been out all day, I wouldn't keep it longer than perhaps the next morning, like uh, food that that's cold, that's been left out. Um, A few hours, let's say that. But um, if we talk about uh, food that needs to be reheated, make sure it actually gets reheated properly. And I would not keep anything for very long. You would really want to try and use it up um, because during Christmas, it's just out there on the bench. um, You never know what's going to happen to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's like, I'm, I'm very, very careful when it comes to leftovers. Uh, maybe had a couple of bad experiences that I'm still traumatized from. Uh, and now here's a question for you without notice. So I'm always fascinated by the politics around the Esky. So you have a big Esky full of beers, um, and the ice goes in, the ice starts to melt and, and maybe other bits and pieces end up in the Esky as well. And the water by the end of the day, not looking so amazing. Um, is that a food poisoning risk as well, if it's like on the outside of your tinnies and then you're kind of putting them up to your mouth?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I would not put the food in with the ASCII with the drinks.
0: Yeah, right. Okay, so there you go. I, and if we, if people stick to all of these tips, they're going to have a good chance to avoid food poisoning at Christmas, uh, which is the last thing that anybody wants. Uh, antimicrobial resistance expert and CEO of biotech company Lixa, Dr Maud Eichenbaum, thank you so much for sharing these important tips on The West Live. Thank
3: you very much, Ben.
0: Well, it's that time of year where we start to count down the biggest stories in 2023. And here to help us do that in terms of federal politics is federal politics editor at the West Australian, Katina Curtis. G'day, Katina. Hi Ben, good to be back with you. And so when you look back over 2023, the year that was in Canberra, what really stands out to you in politics? And and do you want to do it do you want to do a countdown where we start to uh, go down to the biggest story of the year?
2: Oh, I haven't got my stories in that order <laughs> I have just done them in <laughs> I sort of did them in chronological order.
0: Oh, well let's do it. Let's do it that way. <laughs> There's no rules around this sort of thing. Okay, so let's go back to the start of the year uh, and what do you want to start with?
2: So the biggest thing at the start of the year was definitely defence um, and the, the AUKUS um, submarine still. So we saw Asmi Albanese heading to San Diego in March, um, the very hush-hush trip. It was actually, I I travelled with him. Um, We were in India when they formally announced that we would be travelling from there direct to San Diego. Um, So here, and then he got to go and stand on the naval base in front of the submarines um, with Joe Biden and Rishi Sunak there, and announcing that Australia is going to spend $368 billion on acquiring these nuclear-powered submarines. So it's the biggest thing that Australia's ever bought, or the most expensive thing, at least. Um, and I guess there's still a lot of unknowns and a lot of skepticism out there, but you know, if, if they get it right, it really has the, it, it could be completely transformational for Australian defence.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it comes with a few responsibilities. We have to sign on as uh, the America's uh, deputy sheriff in the uh, South Pacific. Um, But I'm sure that's a role that uh, Australia will take on, even if it sometimes means maybe a little bit of a fractious relationship with Beijing. Uh, And then what story is the next big one to cross your radar?
2: Well, the next one, shortly after that, was that um, by-election down in Aston in in Melbourne. Um, so that happened on April Fool's Day, um, but it was perhaps Peter Dutton who ended up looking the fool. Um, so the the Labor won that. So that by-election was obviously triggered by Alan Alan Tudge resigning um, and retiring from Parliament, and. Uh, government has not taken a seat off an opposition in a by-election in about 100 years. So that was really quite signi- historically significant that, that Labor's Mary Doyle won that seat. And you really could see it. It gave Albanese, in particular, a massive boost. You know, he'd already had a pretty extended honeymoon period, and this really just gave Labor a huge confidence, you know, that what they were doing was was people were getting it and people were still happy with them so that yeah that was a pretty pretty big deal for them. (laughs) What did you think what do you think would happen
0: if that by-election was held now?
2: Um, Look well we're actually going to get a bit of a test of that because we're going to have a by-election in Dunkley early in the new year. Um, The date for that hasn't been set and that's because Peter Murphy the Labor MP um, she died from cancer the other week and so so they'll have to be a, a you know get a new member in that seat there so it's not they're not quite exactly the same seats dunkley's um in, in more of a labour friendly area than where aston is but i guess we will get to see i think labour is recognizing that 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 probably will be a fairly big fight there um so we'll see but it's certainly you know peter dutton's whole strategy has basically been targeting the outer suburbs. Um, He doesn't seem to be that necessarily that interested in winning back those seats that went to the independents that were liberal heartlands. Um, And so, uh, you know, the, the, the test there in Aston, which was really one of those sort of key types of seats that he's targeting, I think. You know, back in April, it showed that maybe people weren't in those areas, weren't listening to him yet. But I think that is maybe starting to change.
3: Mm,
0: yeah, it'll be fascinating to watch. OK, so the Aston by-election on April Fool's Day, what's next?
2: Well, you've got the surprise surplus in May in the budget. Um So Jim Chalmers uh, back in May, that second Tuesday in May, handed down the first surplus in 15 years. Now, that was actually for the previous financial year for 2022-23. And he said it was going to be about $4 billion. Now, after the financial year had ended and they'd done all the counting up, it actually ended up being about $22 billion, which is, you know, pretty comfortable surplus. Um, He wasn't forecasting surpluses for the next four years, however, but it does look like we might end up um, getting there again next May. In the updated figures released last week, he said, well, we're not there yet, but we're very close. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so it's basically um, a good chunk of the sort of Windfall revenue is due to those commodity prices, iron ore prices in particular, um, continuing to be high, whereas Treasury always predicts that they're gonna fall from wherever they are when they hand down the budget books. Um, And the other, probably about half of it is from um, high company profits, which means high taxes to the government, and that's non-mining companies. And then also a sizable chunk as well from because we've got so many people in jobs at the moment that means there's a lot more people paying taxes to the government but it also means that the government doesn't have to pay out as much in welfare payments so you've got more receipts and lower payments on that front so it's basically those conditions have continued throughout the whole year and that's what might set them up to have another surplus next may
0: yeah well jim chalmers will bask in the glory this year we'll see what happens next year okay so that was a big moment in federal politics what's next
2: What's next is the thing that really dominated politics for a good six months this year. That's the referendum. Mm. Um, so it was obviously held in October, but, you know, we were really talking about it and not a whole lot else um, from probably around March um, when they sort of first decided the wording of the question and, you know, let it know and be what that was. So it's, um, I mean, it was a really key... It, it, key things for the government it, um, Anthony Albanese was very personally invested in this um, you saw him quite emotional both at the start of the campaign in March when he was surrounded by those Indigenous elders and activists um, and announcing, you know, this is what we want to change the constitution. And then again, very emotional um, on the night of October 14 when it became clear very quickly, even before the polls closed in WA, that um, the referendum was going to go down. And in the end, the no vote prevailed in every single state. It was only in the tiny ACT where, um, where the yes votes got up. We sort of saw pockets of support around the country, but, yes, yeah, definitely nowhere near enough. So I think that the mood of the government has really been, um, you know, quite, quite gloomy since then. Um, they're trying to bounce back, but it's, um, it, it really was a big blow for them. Um, so it will be interesting to see kind of, I guess, how this plays out next year. You know, a lot of people saying, well, we need to have the reset over summer, um, and that it probably won't have an electoral impact, but it's, it's certainly dented that confidence.
0: Yeah, big time. And I think, uh, you know, as you say, Anthony Albanese put so much of his own personal capital into that referendum, uh, didn't go the way he wanted, and the ramifications will be felt for some time to come, I suspect. OK, The Voice was absolutely one of the biggest political stories in 2023. What else have you got for us?
2: I've got I've got three more. <laughs> We've got um, 11 trips overseas for the Prime Minister this year. Um, so the look the, the pace of overseas travel, in a lot of way, it's just part of being a leader in this modern era. You know, they have to um, go to all these leaders' summits if you're going to be um, a, a serious power like you know like Australia is. Or not, we're, we're obviously not a great a big power like China or like America. But, you know, we are a pretty serious player on the world stage and you have to go to these things, basically. So the opposition, you know, started trying to call him Airbus Albo. We saw the tag take off a little bit on um, talkback radio. But really when you press them, they couldn't say, oh, he shouldn't have gone to this one or he shouldn't have gone to that one. Um, so, you know, it's it's... it's it became a bit of a political problem, but there really wasn't anything the Prime Minister could do about it. I think we'll see a similar pace of travel next year. There'll be a, um, a few less things. You know, he he won't presumably he won't have to go to another coronation um, in England, and uh, unless something very surprising happens to King Charles, um, and he you know there won't be the state visit uh, to Washington, and so you know there'll probably be a. A few less trips next year, but you still have a big chunk of them sort of in the back half of the year.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, I think when push comes to shove, it it was definitely very different from, you know, the situation we had with ScoMo, where he was holidaying in Hawaii while uh, half of Australia was on fire. Uh, I think Albo had pretty good excuses for his international travel. But, you know, the optics, the optics of uh, cost of living pressures and all the rest of it, um, you know, is always going to be challenging for a politician. Okay, two stories left. What else you got?
2: Yes, oh, sorry, you must be three. You say cost of living, and I'm meant to talk about that in the budget context. <laughs> That's sort of the cost of living has really just kind of pervaded everything this year. You know, it's um, we saw the cost of living support in the budget um, during the referendum. You know, pollsters were saying all the way through that the only thing that people cared about was the cost of living, and a lot of the referendum message just couldn't cut through. We saw that in the by-election. Um, we saw, it, as you say, in the sort of angst about the. The travel and stuff. So yes, it's it's kind of been. I, just, I don't really even think of cost of living as a story because it's just been the overarching mm. thing that's prevailed through the whole year. But well, next on my list is um, the immigration debacle that's really kind of cruel to the end of the year for the government. Um, so they had that high court ruling in November that said that they couldn't. people locked up in immigration detention indefinitely anymore if there was no prospect of them um, being able to be deported and so the government's response was saying well we've got to let out the people who are in this situation Um, and then we've obviously it's a strong area for Peter Dutton as you and I have discussed before um, and he Peter Dutton surely has made hay with this, you know, to doing everything he possibly can to paint this as a massive failure for the government. Um, and it just really has been a very messy, scrappy end to the year.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, if you, the government would have loved to have had a more rosy end to 2023, but that detainee story certainly has prevented that from happening. All right, you've got one more for us.
2: I've got one more. The last one is industrial relations. This is a a Labor government. They're close to the Labor movement. There shouldn't be any surprises about that, that they're trying to, you know, do what they promised they would do on industrial relations. But gosh, the big miners and big business really are not very happy. Um, This one's going to spill over into next year as well. So we, we did see you know, on the very last sitting day the other week, um, Tony Burke pulled off a surprise announcement that he was going to compromise on his IR deal and just put through about half of it this year um, and try and do the rest um, next year when after the independent senators, David Pocock and Jackie Lambie and Tammy Toole and I've had a bit more time to um, have a look at what's in it. Um, but that, re- that the, the measures that were passed um, through Parliament this year and are now in, in law, um, were, most of them were reasonably uncontroversial, but it did include those labour hire provisions that the miners in particular have been warning are really going to hurt them and therefore hurt WA's economy. So the big business have not given up on this fight. Um, and in fact, you know, I heard ads on the radio the other day um Going on about the labour hire laws and how terrible it was going to be for tradies, um, so even though they've they passed, it's sort of not, you know, it, it, it's not a thing anymore in terms of trying to persuade the parliament on it. But they're still really trying to win over public sentiment. So I think we will really see that continue to play out next year. But it definitely took the government back onto its its strong ground and the story it likes to tell right at the very end of the parliamentary year.
0: Yeah, uh, that story is definitely going to rear its ugly head in 2024. There's no doubt about that. Katina Curtis, Federal Politics Editor of the West Australian over there in our Canberra Bureau, Uh, thank you so much for recapping a huge year in federal politics and we really appreciate you spending the time to call us in to the West Live and keep us up to date on what the pollies are up to in Canberra. You have a great Christmas and we'll talk to you again in the new year.
2: You too, Ben, and to all your listeners. Have a great break. Sport.
0: The rebranded West Test is in the history books, and here to unpack all the action is the West Australians online sports editor, Chris Robinson. Robbo, welcome back. Morning, Ben. How are you? Good, mate, good. And so you were out there up the Stadium, is that right? Yes. Uh, And so the Aussies won... Not a huge surprise. No. Uh, Were you surprised at how dominant a performance it was? Uh, Not really, to be honest. (laughs) I don't think anyone was. Yeah,
4: we're talking about an all-time Australian lineup here that's coming fresh off winning the World Test Championship, uh, securing the ashes over in England as well, and a Pakistan team that doesn't tour particularly well at the best of times, and we're probably missing a couple of guys as well. So... um, I was kind of impressed with the way Pakistan were able to hang in there for the first couple of days. Were able to keep it somewhat interesting, and then really the cream rose to the top as we uh, as we all expected it would. Okay, well let's go through some of the hits and misses of the West Test. Uh, let's start with the you know the rebranding. Yes. Uh, so
0: do you think that was successful? Did um, people got
4: on board? Yeah. Oh, I mean the proof is in the pudding with the crowd numbers. I think. Uh. Um, they were probably a little bit shy of what we had been hoping for. Christina Matthews, the outgoing WA cricket CEO had said that they were hoping for 25,000 on day one, which was a very ambitious target. Um, they ended up getting, I think it was 16 or 17,000 for day one. Across the four days, they ended up just shy of 60,000. It was sort of 59 and Um, I think, I think the most disappointing crowd for me was probably yesterday when you consider... Day four, it was all set up. Steve Smith was at the crease, one of Australia's greatest ever batsmen. And then the prospect of Mitch Marsh going nuts later in the morning to try and set up a declaration target. And then Nathan Lyon, of course, um, about to take his 500th yeah. wicket. Um, but they were able, only able to get just over 9,000 there mm. yesterday um, on the Sunday session. So I thought that crowd could have been, really could have been kind of double that. Um, but I don't know. The, 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 the crowd issue is an interesting one. I think one of the things that gets overlooked with WA crowds as opposed to crowds across the rest of the country is I think WA is the only state that doesn't pause district and community and club cricket across the weekend where the test is in their town, which is just such a no-brainer when you think about it because it's kind of like in this era of asking a question of who's going to spend eight hours watching cricket. The answer is, well, people who spend eight hours playing, <laughs> playing cricket, cricket every yeah. weekend. So that seems like a no-brainer to me that you'd put that on pause and say, hey, come and watch our test match when it's in our hometown." Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Um,
0: and now uh, it certainly did look empty, Optus Stadium. Um, it's And it's games like this where you wonder, you know, the WACA is probably a better option, right? Like it looks more full. Maybe you couldn't do it because of the renovations that were happening there. Is that
4: part yeah. of the decision making. Yeah, you definitely couldn't do it because of the renovations. I think yeah, I, I I love the whacker and I love the character of it and I love the history of it. I think we we do tend to look at it a little bit with rose-colored glasses when it comes to facilities and the lack of shade and all that all that kind of stuff. So <laughs> there's no shade. Yeah, but but I take your point absolutely. Like 16,000 there on day 1. If you put sixteen thousand into the Whacker on day one, the place is heaving. Yeah, the it's vibe a great would be atmosphere. amazing. It looks, you know, it's eighty percent full or whatever it is. Whereas sixteen thousand at Optus, when it's you know two yeah. thirds empty, essentially. Um, has a bit of a different feel to it, so they're they're kind of caught in the middle. Optus oh, is definitely more,
0: more comfortable though. Yes. There's no doubt
4: about that. No question. And even
0: if there's only ten thousand people there, you right. have a whole well, whole wing of the stadium to yourself. <laughs> uh, and in terms of the cricket itself, so let's let's go through the innings. So the first innings, uh, a pretty good performance uh, by Australia with the bat, uh, headlined of course by David Warner's big ton. Yes. Um, there was a lot of talk about the stoush with Mitchell Johnson and Mitch doubled down (laughs) again with his next column. Uh, How would, how would you rate David Warner's performance and you think it sets him up for the summer?
4: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it should. And basically David Warner did what everyone expected David Warner to do. And what David Warner has done for a long time now, which is particularly on our home soil, um, just punish inexperienced mm. attacks and, and touring attacks that don't really know the best of the conditions here. Dave Warner knows exactly how to play these fast and bouncy, bouncy pitches, and he's done that for a very long time. Um, so that, that wasn't really the knock on him coming in. The knock on him coming in was if he's finishing up, is it time to look somewhere else? And particularly given his really modest record everywhere else across the past two years... Um, but the fact that he got the opportunity, I think he was always going to cash in. You could yeah. sort of see it very early on um, and then made a very pointed celebration upon reaching his 100 in the direction <laughs> of the media <laughs> facilities there at Optus Stadium. Um, so no prizes for guessing who that was directed to. But again, Mitchell Johnson, as you said, doubling down on his point, And I think he has every right to where he says, hey, I, I wasn't suggesting that David Warner wasn't going to make runs if he was picked. I was suggesting that he probably shouldn't get picked in the first place and we should look to the future. So um I think it's it's probably a split points decision for those two yeah, across the yeah, weekend. Exactly. I think we'll wait and see at the end of
0: summer and we'll see who yeah. actually won. Uh and then the Pakistanis in their first innings a couple of good starts but uh probably just couldn't capitalize and and left a few runs
4: uh on the board. Yeah, and I mean this is this is going to be the case for Pakistan. Again, they just don't have that experience. It's so hard for for teams that don't have experience in Australia because the decks are just so different to what they're used to on the subcontinent. Um, And if you look at Pakistan's record across the past probably four or so years since COVID kind of came in, they have very rarely left the subcontinent to play test match cricket. Um, And so you just don't get exposed to those kind of conditions that the Australian quicks in particular just revel in um, and you're putting the ball on, a right, on the right length and, and Pakistan's bats, without getting too technical about it, just just don't have the experience and, and don't know how to make the adjustment to the extra bounce, the extra pace that's going to come through. So um, as I said, it was impressive that they hung in there. They are only two down um, at Stumps on day two um, and started pretty well on day three as well on Saturday morning. Um, but then, yeah, once, once Australia's quicks got on top and sort of found that right line and length, it was kind of only a matter of time before they started to, to fold. Yeah, they cleaned him up. Uh, and then Australia's
0: second innings, um, the Pakistanis just couldn't get 10 wickets. Uh, and Mitch Marsh, another uh, half-century man-of-the-match performance. What did you make of him?
4: Yeah, perfect perfect opportunity for Mitch Marsh in that sort of scenario. Australia already had enough runs on the board. He comes to the crease and just has a licence to do Mitch Marsh things, which was basically score a runner ball 60-odd, um, rock back and, and pull some for four. So perfect opportunity for him when you come into the crease where you know that, you know, the opposition's on a hiding to nothing. You've already got enough runs on the board and it's just party time. Um And like I said, that's where I'm a bit surprised that we didn't get a few more fans through the gate, given that yeah, there was a absolutely. prospect of fireworks, Some from, fireworks from the hometown hero. Um A much deserved man of the match as well. Uh It must be said, David Warner obviously had a case for that great knock in the yeah. first innings, but for Marsh to have 90 followed by the unbeaten 63, and then also picked up a really important first innings wicket... Um, of Babar Azam, who's Pakistan's best batter, basically, and he was under a bit of pressure as well, Mitch. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, even though, like, he he he
0: got some runs um, uh, at the One Day uh, World Cup, but you know, in the Test arena, mm-hmm. uh, I think he he needed to score and he did. So I think he'll be he'll be looking pretty good for the rest of summer. Uh, and then you had the Pakistani second innings uh, rolled for 89, uh, and the <laughs> ma- <laughs> which is obviously not good. No, uh, but the main talking point though was Nathan Lyon, who had to wait for it, but he finally got his. final, 500th wicket, uh, which is a piece of cricketing history made right here in Western Australia.
4: Yeah, unbelievable. Just the third Australian to do that. Um, And you're right, he had to wait for it because the quicks were so good and it was very hard for Pat Cummins to... Insert him into the attack when the quicks were he just dominating. He could get the ball out of their hands. Mitch Stark took three wickets early. Cummins bowled a beauty to Babar as well to get him out. So um, mm. when Lyon finally got his chance, there were a couple of there were a couple of half shouts and they had one DRS that was turned down, and then the eventual five hundredth getting it on DRS, which is a little bit anticlimactic yeah. um, <laughs> when you consider the the nature of the occasion. But got a really good ovation as he should um, because an incredible effort. And I mean. If you look at his career and where he's come from and if you told Australia that only four years after Shane Warne retired, that they would find a spinner who could get 500 plus and at 500 and counting um, and become one of the greats of all time, you would have taken it in a heartbeat. So incredible for Australia to keep that spin legacy rolling, albeit a very different bowler and a very different character. Um, Incredible for them to be able to find him. Uh, and he's still got plenty left seemingly
0: yeah he seems evergreen he has injuries from time to time not the not the flashiest of players no. uh, or blokes but geez uh, you can't you can't knock the uh, achievement that's for sure uh, and now looking forward to the next test on boxing day mm-hmm. um, what are you liking about it
4: um, look it's boxing day it's a chance for Melbourne to all of the, the critics, I guess, of the, the Perth test numbers to um, to turn up and, and throw in 80,000 there on Boxing Day, which would be interesting. Um, Australia would be happy to have the extra day off, I think. I think that's quite an important point um, with regard to the fact that they finished it in four days as opposed to still being out there today because there are a couple of sore boys... Mitch Marsh got hit on the head when he was batting. Um, Manus Labashain in particular almost suffered a fracture to his finger. Sounds like he's going to be okay to play. And then Usman Khawaja as well caught one on the forearm. So um, there'll be a few boys that'll be happy about the what eight or nine day break leading into Boxing Day just to, to take stock. But once we get out on the pitch, Ben, I'm expecting very much more of the same. Particularly, or potentially even more comprehensive, if Australia decide to insert Pakistan, or if Pakistan bat first, that could be a three-day Test match. So yeah. um, <laughs> let's let's hope for the series' sake <laughs> and for competitive sake that Australia get another bat first up in Melbourne. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, the series might become a bit of a yeah. farce.
0: Yeah. Uh, geez. Yeah. Yeah. Dearie me.
4: Uh, Chris Robinson, online sports
0: editor for the West Australian. Thanks for joining me on the West Live, uh, and we'll talk to you again soon. No problem. Thanks, man. And we'll be back from 7am tomorrow. And don't forget to subscribe to The West Live wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to The West Live with Ben O'Shea. If the story behind the story matters to you, then you can count on the thewest.com.au to deliver.